America, it seems, loves a good gangster story. And we love our heroes, of course, but there's something about the bad girls or the bad boys that just capture our imagination. A century and a half ago, it was Billy the Kid and Jesse James, bank robbers who took from the rich and lived by their wits. Then it was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. In the 30s, John Dillinger thrilled the papers as he robbed banks and eluded the G-men. America had a love affair with Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow as they rolled across the country, robbing banks and flirting with their victims. Hollywood took these common criminals and made them into antiheroes. And we loved it. Every minute of it. Sure, they were breaking the law, but who were they really hurting? Except the banks and the insurance companies and a whole lot of murder victims. Then, in 1971, at Thanksgiving, we got our next anti-hero. A man whose legend lives and grows even today, almost 50 years after he jumped out of the back door of a 727 nearly two miles up in the air and landed in our collective consciousness. So, mix yourself a, what else? A D.B. Cooper. And see if you can solve that enduring mystery. Who was, or who is, D.B. Cooper? Our story begins on Thanksgiving Eve in 1971. An average-looking man of average height and weight, wearing an average-looking black suit and an average-looking white shirt with an average-looking black tie and carrying an average-looking briefcase, went to the Northwest Orient ticket counter at the Portland, Oregon airport and laid down $20 for a one-way ticket to Seattle. He walked to the plane and boarded it, sitting near the back. He motioned for a stewardess and ordered a bourbon and seven on the rocks. Just another businessman heading home for Thanksgiving with his family. The plane took off at 2.50 p.m. Shortly after takeoff, he turned around and handed the flight attendant who was sitting in the jump seat behind him a note. Thinking it was just another lonely or horny businessman handing her his phone number, she didn't even look at it. She just put it in her pocket. Then the average-looking man half-turned in his seat and in a calm voice said, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. Florence Schaffner unfolded the note. The average-looking man, Dan Cooper was his name, asked Schaffner to sit down next to him. She asked to see the bomb. He opened the briefcase enough for her to see eight 
bright red cylinders with wires attached to the top and running to a battery. He then told her his demands. He wanted $200,000 in negotiable American currency. He wanted four parachutes. And he wanted a fuel truck standing by at the airport in Seattle. Schaffner told the flight crew what he said. When she returned to the seat, he was wearing a pair of dark glasses. She and the other flight attendants remembered him being very calm and well-spoken. He reassured her that no one was going to get hurt. He was very polite. He asked for another bourbon and seven. He even paid his bar tab and told one of the other attendants she could keep the change. The flight crew radioed ahead and told their airline of their situation. The FBI and local authorities were notified immediately. The president of the airline wasted no time. He decided to meet the hijackers' demand and began gathering the cash from various banks. The FBI and police found the parachutes at a local skydiving school. The flight crew announced to the passengers that there was a minor mechanical difficulty with the plane and their landing in Seattle would be delayed. As the plane was circling Puget Sound, Cooper turned to the flight attendant and said, you know, that looks like Tacoma down there. He also commented that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive away from the SeaTac Airport. He told another flight attendant to make sure that they radioed ahead and told the airport to have meals waiting for the flight crew when they landed. Finally, the airplane notified the flight crew that they had the money and the parachutes and that a fuel truck was standing by. The plane touched down in Seattle at 5.39 p.m. and taxied to a remote location on the runway. An airline employee brought the money. $10,020 bills, unmarked. The FBI had recorded the serial numbers and taken a microfilm photograph of all the bills. The airline also brought four parachutes with him. After he received the money, Cooper told all the passengers and all the flight attendants, except one, to leave the plane. That left only the flight crew, Rachel Mucklow, the flight attendant, and Cooper on the plane. While the plane was being fueled, Cooper went to the cockpit and told the flight crew to fly toward Mexico City at the minimum possible airspeed that wouldn't stall the plane. That would be about 115 miles an hour. He told them not to go higher than an altitude of 10,000 feet. He also told them to lower the wing flaps to 15 degrees and leave the landing gear down. He told them to leave the cabin depressurized and to leave the back door open and the staircase down. The co-pilot told him they would have to refuel at some point, and he agreed that they could land in Reno, Nevada to take on additional fuel. Then he told them to take off. Airline personnel radioed the plane and said it wasn't safe to take off with the aft door open. Cooper smiled and said it's perfectly safe, but I don't want to argue that point. Go ahead and shut it. 
I'll open it myself after we're airborne. The plane took off at 7.40 p.m. The Air Force scrambled two F-16 fighter aircraft and followed the plane. One was above the plane and one was below, so no one could see them. A training aircraft also followed, but eventually had to turn back when they reached the Oregon-California state line. After they were airborne, Cooper told the flight attendant to leave the cabin, go to the cockpit, shut the door, and stay there. As she did, she saw him tying something around his waist. At 8 p.m., a warning light came on, indicating that the rear door had been opened. At 8.13 p.m., the tail section of the plane suddenly pitched up, requiring the pilot to make some adjustments to bring the plane level. At 10.15, the plane landed in Reno with the rear door open and the air stair down. Police and FBI rushed the plane, but Cooper was gone. Inside, they found two of the parachutes, one of which had been cut to make rope. They also found a clip-on tie a pearl tie clip, and numerous Raleigh cigarette butts, and 66 latent fingertips. The FBI interviewed eyewitnesses, people on the plane who may have seen him. They also talked to both the flight attendants who had spent most of the time with Cooper. They began looking for suspects. In Portland, Oregon, they notified and contacted a man named D.B. Cooper. He had a minor police record. Police quickly determined that he was not involved, but a local reporter confused his name with the name Dan Cooper that the hijacker had used. He filed his story and the Associated Press picked it up. And from that day on, the world knows the hijacker not as Dan Cooper, but as D.B. Cooper. Investigators concluded that the up pitch of the plane at 8.13 was the likely jump time and tried to recreate the flight path. They determined that Cooper most likely landed near Mount St. Helens, near the town of Ariel in Washington, close to Lake Merwin. They focused their search in Clark and Cowles counties. They searched on foot and by helicopter They went to all the farmhouses, door-to-door. They questioned people on the roads. They questioned train engineers, trying to see if anyone had seen a man walking that night. But no trace of Cooper or the money or the parachutes was found. The FBI released the serial numbers from the bills, and they sent those lists to banks casinos, and racetracks anywhere that a person could try to get rid of $20 bills. The airline offered a reward of 15% of any recovered money. Various newspapers also offered rewards, but none was ever turned in. Later, the FBI recalculated the drop zone based on some different analyses. There was a Continental aircraft that was following the same flight path, as the Northwest Orient plane that Cooper jumped out of, and they reported that the flight path was actually southeast of the original calculation. The police then revised their estimate and believed that Cooper probably jumped somewhere near the Washougal River. 
They searched there too, but didn't find anything. Seven years later, a deer hunter found a placard with instructions for lowering the stairway of a 727 in the woods near Castle Rock, Washington. In 1980, an eight-year-old boy was camping with his parents near Tina Bar on the Columbia River. He was raking leaves to try to get some tinder for a campfire and found three packets of the ransom cash. The bills were still wrapped together with a rubber band, but they had fairly well disintegrated. There were two full packets of $100 bills, and the third packet had 10 missing. Only 90 bills, but the rubber band was still around them. Over the years, working with private investigators and amateur sleuths, more information was released. It indicated that certain types of metals were found on the tie and the tie clip that were associated with certain industries and manufacturing processes. This led many people to believe that the hijacker must have been an engineer or metallurgist. They also revealed that one of the reserve parachutes that Cooper received didn't work. It was actually a dummy chute. It was used in the classroom to instruct people how to fold a parachute, but it was actually sewed shut. This was one of the chutes that Cooper took with him when he jumped. The FBI couldn't believe that an experienced skydiver would not use a real parachute. This led them to believe that prior to what they first thought, this person was not an experienced skydiver. They also developed a profile. Based on some of the things that he told the flight attendant, they believed that he must have been familiar with the area and that he may have been an Air Force veteran since he knew the lay of the land from, from the airplane and also um, that he knew how far it was from a local Air Force base to the airport. They couldn't agree on a motive, though. Usually, they said, someone who commits this type of act and asks for a large sum of money must be in dire financial straits, maybe gambling debts. But on the other hand, none of the money has ever turned up. They thought maybe he was just a thrill seeker who is doing this to prove that it could be done. But what about the name Dan Cooper? Some people believe that this may have come from a Belgian comic book that was sold in Canada. Dan Cooper, in the comic book, was a special forces soldier with the Royal Canadian Air Force. The comic book was sold in Canada, but not in the U.S. They were also troubled with the way Cooper referred to the ransom. He didn't ask for $20,000 in unmarked bills or $20,000 in cash. He said he wanted $20,000 in negotiable American currency. That's not usually the way most Americans would refer to money, which led them to believe maybe he wasn't an American. The fact that he didn't speak with an accent, that he was from the Pacific Northwest, and this comic book connection has led some people to believe that he may in fact have been Canadian. The profile noted that he was also very familiar with flying techniques and aircraft and the terrain. 
They speculated that he specifically chose a 727 because of engine placement. It would enable him to jump out the back door well away from the engines and not get caught in their exhaust or sucked in. He knew how to control the altitude and airspeed of the plane. That's why he wanted it depressurized and wanted the back door open. This way, he wouldn't have to be in the cabin watching the pilots all the time. He also knew that the door could be opened in flight. And this was something that was not generally known even to civilian flight personnel. To some, this suggested a military or perhaps even a CIA military connection for the hijacker. The Cooper skyjacking has engendered various books, TV movies, and documentaries. It has also generated more than a few suspects. Many FBI experts believed Cooper died somewhere in the wilderness of the Cascades, his body at the bottom of a river or a lake, or maybe it was devoured by the animals roaming in the mountainous wilderness. Others believe that he survived and lived out his life in anonymity, satisfied that he had pulled off the perfect crime. Or maybe, just maybe, he's still out there, a 90-year-old man, still relishing the joke that he played on the world. Who do you think D.B. Cooper is? Thank you, Dad. I love this story. I didn't think I'd love it this much, but I watched a documentary about it last night. And I don't know if it's because I love the 70s or like looking more into plane travel at that time. It was just so glamorous. But like, and it's got that like, you know, I we just watched The Flight Attendant and I loved it. So it's like all this stuff I'm into right now. Amazing. Had you ever heard of D.B. Cooper before we decided to do this? I had not. And I even last week when you said we were doing D.B. Cooper, I was dreading it because I was like, oh, I know nothing about this. I have to learn everything. Usually I have a, a background, but I knew nothing. Knowledge is good. It is. Ignorance is not bliss, people. We know that all too well in 2021, don't we? Indeed. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to get into this. I have... I have a lot of different like theories I think could be possible, but uh, let's get into it. So we haven't covered the 70s yet in Trends of the Crime. Oh my, you're right. So exciting. Well, here we go. The 60s are my favorite, but I also love the 70s. I did get my 70s bangs recently. I see that. So. And this 70s were my High school years and Your early heyday. college years, so I remember a lot of the fashions back then. Girls in Dalhart, Texas, you know who you are. <laughs> You'll have your chance to. Uh, I I put in there. Dad describe his his style in the seventies because I I knew that you'd have fun with this one. I do have so in trends of the crime today. This is sponsored by Style a la Mode. We will be going over women's wear, men's wear. That'll be your time to shine. Okay. And also, I thought I'd talk about. Stewardess fashion and rules because they had a lot of rules. If you guys thought the beauty queens had a lot of rules, you just wait till these mid century stewardess rules. 
come out. And of course, we do not call them stewardesses anymore. Not anymore. I only said that because that's what they were called then. Okay. They are called flight flight attendants, attendants. correct? I wanted to make sure that was still the correct term. And I don't want to get you in trouble, so. Thank you. I only said stewardess because that's what they were called in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Pan Am age. All right. 1970s women's wear. Thank you for saving me, Dad. But that is my intention, yes. Uh, Hippie dresses, which you can find at Target now. There's actually a very funny TikTok trend with these peasant and hippie dresses where uh, people are putting them on and holding like their chickens because they look like Little House on the Prairie. Holding their chickens. I, I <laughs> So people like I me was, who have I, chickens? Oh, I was worried for a minute. <laughs> I thought that was a euphemism for something nope. else. And I thought this <laughs> this is a quasi-family podcast. But okay, I see what you mean. I meant Go real, ahead. real chickens. All right. And it's like, it's funny because they look like they belong on the farm. But Target is selling them like they're fashionable. So anyway, those are coming back. But some people, you either love them or you hate them. I kind of hate them, but that's just me. Shift dresses, which I love. Very 60s. Since this is the early 70s, that still works. Peasant blouses and band tees. Band tees are very much back right now. Bell bottoms on their way back. Please please explain a band tee. Like t-shirts for Nirvana or what's a 70s band? Oh, like band? a band. Yeah, like a... Aren't... Oh, I thought, I, th- I thought maybe it was like a skimpy little thing like a band-aid, but okay, oh, no. I get you now. Okay. Like a rock band. Okay, I got you. I don't know 70s bands, though. The Beatles, right? They're mm, 60s. They're 60s, yeah. It's a 71, though. Yeah. Uh, Stones were in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. played in the 70s. It's like a T for the Stones. Okay. Um, bell bottoms. Decorated clothing with patches and embroidery, like crocheted, those crocheted vests. Jumpsuits. Denim everything. Long knit vests. Like I said, the crocheted vests. Layered over tops and pants, so they were very long. Vintage 1920s jewelry and accessories revival. Mm. So the 70s, they really wanted to bring the 20s back. Mm-hmm. And also, of course, curtain bangs. If you don't know what those are, just look at me. So so we're basically talking for women, the Partridge family. Correct. In the 70s. Exactly. You know, I, I think of the Brady Bunch, and they... they they were more, I guess, conservative. But mm-hmm. uh, Lori Partridge, th- this is her style. Yep, exactly. Perfect. For men's, I don't have much because I want dad to talk about his personal time that, at that time. Bold and daring outfits. Tied up top and flared at the bottom. Tight tees, turtleneck sweaters, leisure suits. I want you to tell that a story about a le- leisure suit, dad. Platform shoes and vests. Please tell us about your style in the 1970s. Well, in the early 1970s, when I was, I would have been junior high and high school. I graduated in 1974, so I remember some of the pants I had back then. Very wild, psychedelic colors, uh, either bell bottoms or flares. Um, very tight, of course. Uh, it seemed like back then every, all your clothes had to be like a size too small because, <laughs> you know, we, we wanted tight pants. We wanted tight shirts. Uh, we'd usually leave the top button undone, uh-huh. um, to show off chest hair, a little of, chest hair of which I had none, <laughs> um, shoes, 
like you said, platform shoes. I remember I had two pair of dress shoes when I was growing up. Uh, one of them were, was white, patent leather, with a with a large kind of wood heel, and the other were were brown and white, patent leather. But again, you know, both with pretty big platforms. And of I course, would pay to see you yes. in platform shoes. Of course, we can't forget the belts, mm-hmm. wide white belts. Uh, on Fridays, uh, our football team, uh, of course, we'd have pep rallies and everybody had to wear all the members of the team. And yeah, I was just a manager, but I was That's still part, part of, of the, the team. team okay. Uh, <laughs> every Friday during football season, we would have to wear a tie to school. Oh. And of course, the ties were, were extremely wide, double Windsor knots, very loud colors, loud designs. Uh, are, are wide? No, narrow ties are coming back narrow now, ties. aren't they? Well, back then, they were really wide, wild mm-hmm. ties. By the time, by the late 70s, the smartly dressed young man uh, had uh, one or two leisure suits in his wardrobe. Do tell. Now, a leisure suit uh, at that time was uh, a very short jacket. Um that would button or snap up very high. And of course, underneath the leisure suit, uh, one would wear a very colorful shirt and you would take the collar and put it over the leisure suit. Again, of course, with the top button of both unbuttoned just to give a hint of of the sexiness of the wearer. Uh, And uh, platform shoes still were Uh in. I I had two leisure suits back then. I had a a canary blue, a, a no, uh, kind of a robin's egg blue leisure suit. Uh, but I also had a canary yellow leisure <laughs> suit. Dad. Uh, which, which plays a very important role in your life. How so? I was wearing the canary oh, no. yellow easier, leisure suit. <laughs> la, la, la. <laughs> the first time your mother saw me. Oh. And she commented on it. And, uh, I think I won her heart with my canary yellow leisure suit, which of course led uh, some years later, uh, to you. Oh, so uh, yes. I've always dreaded that leisure suits might be coming back. Have you heard anything about nope. it? Trin? Okay, that's good. Not I'm, yet, anyway. They were um, looking back on it. They were really pretty awful. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you you were very abreast of the uh, fashion trends in the seventies, Dad. Well, of course. So did I get my fashion sense from you? You must have. Yes, and. And I, of course, got mine from Keith Partridge and Greg uh-huh. Brady. Of course. This will be a test to see if mom listens to our podcast. That's right. <laughs> Don't tell her. We'll see if she says anything. <laughs> All right. Um, and, and of course, jeans were worn, but again, kind of bell bottoms or flared jeans. Again, very tight jeans. So in the summer, we would wear shorts. Again, if you've ever seen some old NBA uh, film with Larry Bird or Magic Johnson, the shorts were short. And tight, uh, with with uh, socks that went almost up to the knee. Mm-hmm. And, I can uh, see it. And t-shirts, tight, of course. Of course, my grandpa in law rocks the seventies shorts. Still. Okay, but he looks. I mean, he doesn't look a day over fifty five. He's older than fifty five. Now we'll see if he's listening. Yeah, well, I doubt it, but we'll see. <laughs> Well, those are my memories of 70s fashion for the smartly dressed high school and college student. Love it. That's exactly what I was hoping you would say, all that stuff. It's great. 
so like I said, the flight attendants in the 1970s or stewardesses as they were called at the time, they had a lot of rules back then. And they were called stewardesses because you had to be a woman. They did not have male flight attendants at this time. So yes, the job was exclusive to women until fairly modern times. I don't know the exact year that they started allowing men to do this job, but it was fairly recently. Do you happen to know what range that would have been? I just learned fairly I, modern. I really don't. Yeah. But it, if, if they weren't allowing men in the 70s, I mean, that was only 50 years ago. So that tells you. As time went on, like from 50s, 60s, 70s, the skirts that they wore got shorter and shorter, and they also wore suit jackets. These women had to agree not to gain a certain amount of weight. This was in their contract. So whether it was five pounds, 10 pounds, I don't know if they got checked, but they they were contractually obligated to not gain a certain amount of weight, which also meant they couldn't get pregnant. And they also could not be married. If they got married or pregnant, they had to resign, which is illegal now. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, now the flight attendants, uh, flight attendants by the eighties, probably the eighties, they there began to maybe even late seventies. There were lawsuits being filed, and that's when a lot of these rules had to go. Mm-hmm. Um, the airlines claimed they were uh, necessary because business travelers expected a certain image, and the courts ruled that really has nothing to do with their mm-hmm. job. Uh, they ruled the height and weight requirements uh, were were necessary in case they ever had to evacuate a plane. Oh, my God. And the courts ruled, well, there's other ways to test if they have the physical ability to do that. So, you know, if you've flown recently, you know that, uh, you know, flight attendants come in all genders, all sizes, and all shapes, mm-hmm. and all ages, for that matter. Yeah. And I didn't find this in particular, but I'm guessing there was an age cap to being a flight attendant at this time. I would think they so. They were all very young, like mm-hmm. 18, mm-hmm. in their low 20s. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. every In in the documentary I watched about this case, the flight attendants were like 19, 20 years old. Which makes sense, because if you couldn't get married and people got married pretty young back then, they were probably young. Uh, these women had to be pretty and outgoing, according to who? I guess the uh, airline. Because pretty can mean many things to many people. So they had to maintain a personal moral standard, air quotes, decided by each airline. So I have no specifics on this. Uh, You know, looking sexy, but having morals. Lady on the street. Freak in the sheets, I guess. Sort of thing. It wasn't unusual for a flight attendant to be asked to hike up her skirt during a job interview to prove that her legs were nice enough for the uniform. Goodness. Okay, then. (laughs) Illegal today. (laughs) Well, that's all I have for Trends of the Crime. The 70s are a lot of fun. I hope we do more 70s cases. This was a general overview of the 70s, plus some specialized topics Mm -hmm. for the topic at hand. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to add? We're going to get more into flying in the 70s, by the way. Well, one one memory I have, again, you know, this was also the age, the 70s, for, for women and girls. It was the age, of course, of miniskirts. Mm-hmm. And I still remember in my high school, sometimes a teacher would have a girl stand by their desk and uh, stand up and hold their arms straight. And if their fingertips were touching uh, bare legs, they'd be sent home to change. Still a thing. Is that right? 
That was the thing when I was in high school. And that was eight years ago. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Fingertip test. Yep. Still there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I can, I, I, of course, will not name her. But I remember one girl who got sent home. She was the only one I knew of that got sent home. And we were all really mad because her outfit was really cute. And um, we just think the teacher didn't like her. And that's why she sent her home. But she looked really cute. Well, let's get into our discussion. Tell us about this D.B. Cooper cocktail. Well, I, I wanted to see if there was anything out there specifically related to D.B. Cooper. I, I, what he ordered on the plane was just simply a bourbon and seven, which is... What's the seven? Seven up. Oh. oh. Bourbon with a splash of seven up. Interesting. I, I wanted to do something a little bit more complex than that, and so I just Googled D.B. Cooper cocktail. I was shocked. There are dozens of cocktails named after D.B. Cooper. There are probably dozens of bars named after D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper's Hijack Hideaway. <laughs> D.B. Cooper's Hideaway. Just on and on. So I, I, picked, uh, I picked one uh, of the D.B. Cooper cocktails um, from a little bar in Oregon. I picked that one because... Uh, I just happen to have all the all the ingredients on hand. Um, has kind of an Italian flavor. Not sure why. Maybe it came from an Italian restaurant, but it's going to be equal parts bourbon, uh, apparel, which is kind of a, a tart Italian liquor liqueur, uh, some Disarano, which is an Italian almond liqueur, and some lemon juice. So I expect something tart. Uh, I may cut back a little bit. On the Aperil, because it is, it's pretty bitter. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're going to try that. See, see how it tastes. Will you be making this for me this evening? I certainly shall. I'm excited to try it. I do like Di Serrano. Mm-hmm. That should add some sweetness to the mm-hmm. to the tartness. Well, that sounds really good. I'm excited. So I I did a bit of a a deep dive in flying in 1971 because I'm going on a plane this week. And I thought, and I recently went on a plane, so I have a recent memory of what flying is like, of course. So you're going on a plane. Yes. And this being the 1970s, Uh I'm thinking Peter, Paul, and Mary, you're leaving on On a jet jet plane. plane. I don't Don't know when when you'll be back back again. again. Oh, babe, (laughs) I hate to go. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you very much. You do know when I'll be back because you'll have my dog. That's true. <laughs> and it'll be a long trip, so have fun with my dog. <laughs> Anywho, um, yeah, I of course, as we know, flying now is more of an annoyance. It's more of a chore. I actually love going to the airport. I like the hustle and bustle, and it's it means it's time for a trip, and I think it's fun. It's not so fun during COVID, but I've been vaccinated. Woot woot. So it shouldn't be as bad as the last plane trip was. I'm still going to be careful, everyone. Do not worry. Double mask up. All right. I I had heard before doing all this research that flying in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was awesome, although it wasn't nearly as safe. And that time period, those 30 years, were the golden age of aviation. More like 20 years because by mid-70s, 80s, it started getting more mainstream. But early 70s, it was still very much the golden age of aviation. There's no security, because as we know, 9-11 bumped that up. Was there any security before then? 
Yeah, the high. Yeah, the there was a rash of hijackings in the seventies. Yes, is uh, that when stuff's right? A lot of a lot of people would board planes and they would. <laughs> the classic line was "Take me to Cuba." And, I have that uh, on here. And that's when uh, that, that those were the first hijackings I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, communists, revolutionaries would want to go to Cuba, and the planes would fly to Cuba. And after that, uh, I think things started to tighten up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. We didn't actually have to go through metal detectors or anything until after 9-11, I don't believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, they started restricting the kind of luggage you could carry on board and searching luggage and bags even mm-hmm. before that. Well, and something funny about the hijackings to Cuba were I in this video. So. A lot of my information is from a documentary I just watched on HBO Max called The Mystery of D.B. Cooper. But about flying specifically, I found a YouTube video by Weird History called What It Was Like During the Golden Age of Flying. And they said, I think this was in the documentary, but they said that the passengers who were hijacked by the people who wanted to go to Cuba loved it because they got off the plane, got themselves a few cigars got back on and got to go where they were trying to go. So mm-hmm. it was like fun and games to them. They were yeah. like, yeah, let's go. Get me some cigars. And they like expected it almost. Yeah. 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 I thought that was funny. Speaking of hijackings, they happened all the time. Between 1968 and 1972, there were 130 American airplane hijackings in four years. I can't imagine. That gives me anxiety thinking about that <laughs> happening. Like, I'm getting on a plane. Today is Sunday. I fly Thursday morning, and this is making me very anxious. But we have a lot of security now, so should be okay. On on the planes at in, during this time period, there was free booze and free lunch or dinner, I guess. But, well, it was usually lunch. And by free lunch, I mean lobster, roast beef, prime rib, champagne for free. I mean, not for free. It was included in your ticket right. price, of course. And tickets were in the thousands for one ticket. Uh, If you were just going a short distance, like it wasn't even like going from here to Europe. They couldn't. Um, Could they go that far? I mean, it'd be a bunch of stops. No, they were were having solo transatlantic flights in the 60s. What does that mean? Where you could fly directly from the United States to Europe in the 60s. Yeah, I mean. I thought they had to stop multiple. No, that was in the 30s. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> that was Lindbergh stuff. No, right, by right, the 60s, okay. you were flying from you were flying from New York to London or, or Los Angeles to Hawaii. And, and but it was more expensive. Mm-hmm. This video told me it was five times more expensive as plane tickets are today. It's about probably In about a normal right. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a lounge area. That was laid out in a way where people could network and lounge in comfy chairs with tables that they could chat, drink, or play cards. And this was usually like in the upper deck of the plane. So that's pretty cool. There was no distinction between classes. So no, there wasn't a such thing as like coach, first class, business class. It was all, it was all luxury for everyone. If you could afford a ticket, then you could afford that luxurious plane ride. People often arrive to their destinations refreshed instead of feeling bored the whole way. So we often feel like, oh, can't believe I had to get on a plane. Whereas back then they'd be like, I just had the best time. I'm ready for my trip. And uh, everyone also dressed up to get onto a plane. 
three-piece suits for men and dresses and jewelry for women. Yeah, I flew once in 1973, I believe it was, the first time I ever flew from from Amarillo, Texas to Houston, and I remember I wore a I wore a coat and tie. Mm-hmm. 17, 18 years old, but that's just what people did back then. How much was your ticket? Do you I know? have no idea. Curious. Yeah, I was going to ask you when the first time you flew was where why were you going to Houston? I was actually going to preach at a youth revival at a church in Houston, Texas. Oh, fun. What's a youth revival? Is that bad? Well, you know, it's <laughs> it's where you go down and all the youth come to the church and you try to Save get them, them saved. Okay. Yeah. Um, in fact, I had a girlfriend in Houston at the time uh-huh. was an added bonus to that. Okay. <laughs> I'm guessing you wouldn't go preaching at youth revivals today. I think I'll take a hard pass. <laughs> Good. <laughs> there were also no luggage limits or fees at that, like in the 60s and early 70s, but it took a lot longer to get your baggage than it does now. Was that the case with your plane? Or did you have a luggage limit? Like, were you allowed to take as many as you want? Well, it was only a weekend trip. And yeah, I think I just had one suitcase probably. Okay. Did you just take it onto the plane? I have. I don't, don't remember. remember. <laughs> okay. Well, supposedly you could take as many bags as you wanted, but instead of the little fun little, what's it called, carousel, mm-hmm. men would be delivering suitcase from the plane to you by hand. So it took hours and hours. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember anything about that. That was if you were check. Well, I guess I don't know if they checked bags. Anyway, that's what I have about flying in the seventies. However, it was very dangerous and. They used this luxury to kind of trick people into thinking it really wasn't that bad, but you were a lot more likely to die on a plane back then than you are today. Today, driving the car is more dangerous than flying. So, In that documentary I watched that I talked about on HBO called The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, they covered four main suspects. And I thought, I naively thought, oh, that must be all the suspects. Well, on Wikipedia, there's about 9 million. <laughs> I don't know how many. It's got to be in the 20s. Yeah, there are there are quite a few. A lot. Um, like a lot of people know that their neighbor was D.B. Cooper. Yeah, that's the interesting thing that I found. Usually it's somebody's relative or someone's friend who went to the FBI and said, I think my uncle, I think my neighbor was D.B. Cooper. Right. Well... I just want to go over the four that were in the documentary because I obviously know the most about them. All right. Well, let's do that. And I'll tell you what I think of each one because I think I I looked at all these. Okay, great. That you have listed here. First, we have Dwayne Weber. He was a World War II Army vet who spent time in prisons for burglary and forgery in the 50s and 60s. Three days before his death in 1995, he confessed to being D.B. Cooper to his wife on his deathbed. He told her that his knee injury was from jumping out of a plane. Uh, And then prior to this, to his confession, he told his wife, Joe, I'm sorry, he and his wife, Joe, took a trip to Seattle and the Columbia River in 1979. During that trip, Weber took a walk alone along the riverbank in the Tina Bar area. And four months later, the ransom cash discovery was made in the same area. So the the thought was, he took that walk, 
dug up the money, the $200,000, and most of it was in good condition. So he went back to the hotel room. Joe got a picture of him saying like, Geronimo, and like very happy, like a really happy picture. So the thought is he was happy that all but 3,000 was in good condition. And then when this $3,000 in ransom cash was found, it was in bad condition. It had holes in it, whatever. So the thought is he put it in a paper bag and put it down the river. And then that kid found it in 1980, the next year. And we know that that money was D.B. Cooper's money because of the serial numbers. Yes. And Joe knows that he put a paper bag in the river. Mm -hmm. So the thought is that the money was in this paper bag. Mm -hmm. But he was happy because 197000 was okay. So. That's that connection. Dwayne was eliminated as an active suspect in 1998. This was after his death. When his fingerprints didn't match any of those processed in the hijacked plane, his DNA also failed to match that on the samples found of Cooper's tie. But the FBI can't be certain that the organic material on the tie actually came from Cooper. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean a whole lot. No. What do you think about Dwayne? Of the four you have listed here, if I had to pick one, he'd he'd be my favorite. Really? But but here's here's one reason you didn't mention. This is what really I find compelling about him. Mm-hmm. When he made his deathbed confession to his wife, he didn't say, I'm DB Cooper. He said, I'm Dan, Dan Cooper. Dan Cooper. Mm-hmm. Now the whole world knew him, knew this person as DB Cooper. But he said, I'm Dan Cooper, which was the name that was used, which which I find that pretty compelling. Good point. The, the wife didn't know. She had no idea who Dan Cooper was. She ended up She didn't know what he was library. talking about. Yeah. No, she went to the library later and found out. And that's when she remembered the trip to the river, which, again, I find compelling that he's at this place. Now, I didn't know about the excitement and the Geronimo. I just know he was there. And then later, the cash is found. So. Um, those things cause me to believe that, you know, he uh, certainly could be. And I think that he, he did bear resemblance. He did. And he, picture. he would have been in the right age range. Right. The fingerprints don't really bother me because he was alone in that plane for, well, if the plane took off at 740, I think, and he jumped at 813, and he ordered everyone out of the cockpit, and they didn't have the little peepholes in the cabin door that they have now. Uh, he was probably pretty careful. He had plenty of time to just wipe down that plane and everything that that he may have touched. So the fingerprints don't bother me, uh, and of course the the DNA on the on the tie clip doesn't bother me. I'm sure dozens of people uh, touched that thing over the years. So. The, the I'm Dan Cooper, I find really, really compelling. Good point. I forgot that he yeah. had said that. Yeah. That detail. Yeah. Now, but but here's the thing in all of this. $197,000, but where is it? Exactly. Why? Like, that, wouldn't that, she have seen it? Yeah, or wouldn't he have put it somewhere? I mean, right. well, I guess you know you can't spend it. Yeah, true. So... I don't know. You'd have to launder it, right? Yeah. But uh, eventually, it's got to get back in circulation. Yeah. I mean, for, for whoever ends up with the money has to be able to spend it. And those serial numbers are still out there. Yeah. So. Huh. 
You know, uh-huh. if, if someone showed up with a 50-year-old $20 bill at this point, I think a lot of people would be pretty suspicious. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Don't but be yeah, suspicious. Yeah, Dwayne uh, ranks right up there for me. Good point. He doesn't look as much like the sketch as somebody else, but we all know that sketches tend to not be super accurate because they're coming off of other people's memories. So that that doesn't bother me. I think, yeah, the Dan Cooper thing is very compelling. Next, we have Barbara Dayton. She was, oh, I forgot to say, Dwayne also had that military connection, which you said during your story was important. Barbara Dayton was a recreational pilot and librarian who was born as Robert Dayton. She aspired to become a commercial airline pilot, but could not obtain a commercial pilot's license due to rules and the test and all that. Dayton claimed to have staged the hijacking by dressing up as a man to get back at the airline industry and the FAA, whose insurmountable rules and conditions had prevented her from becoming an airline pilot. She said that the ransom money was hidden in a cistern near Woodburn, Oregon, or Woodburn, uh-oh, I don't know if it's Washington or Oregon, but later recanted the whole story when she learned she could still be charged for the hijacking. What do you think about Barbara? I don't believe this one that much. Well, no. And and I would think she had close contact with both of the flight attendants. And, and they were pretty they, would have known. They, they were pretty clear in the description. Swarthy skin, deep voice. I that would have been a master disguise to try to pull that off. So no, I, I don't even waste time with that. Yeah. Uh, I want to say one other thing about Dan Weber I forgot to mention. Mm-hmm. He was also a chain smoker and a mm. bourbon drinker. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. As was T.B. Cooper or mm-hmm. Dan Cooper, everyone, yeah. in case you yeah. forgot. Yeah. And he also told his wife that he had a nightmare during yes. which he talked in his sleep about jumping from a plane, leaving his fingerprints on the aft stairs. <gasps> So I, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good about Dwayne Weber. If I could just think about uh, what happened to the money. And Joe is very confident. Joe, his wife, his widow, very confident. I mean, all these people are, but and Joe has a a man who she, I assume she pays him um, to help her put together these memories mm-hmm. and put together the fact that Dwayne was. Dan Cooper, mm-hmm. he was in the documentary, mm-hmm. and he helps her like put it all because he knows a lot about the case, mm-hmm. so he like works with her. So, and he he said in the end, like the documentary ends with him, and he's saying like sometimes I wonder if I'm as delusional as everyone else because everyone thinks they know who Dan Cooper was, but it has to be Dwayne is basically what he's saying. So good points, Dad. Hmm. Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. is the one that I think resembles the sketch the most. But there are a lot of reasons I don't think it was him. He was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. He later became a warrant officer in the Utah National Guard. He was an avid recreational skydiver. But as we know, the FBI concluded that Dan Cooper probably wasn't an avid skydiver. McCoy staged the best known of the copycat hijackings on April 7th, 1972. On a flight from Denver, McCoy demanded four parachutes and $500,000 by threatening with a paperweight that resembled a hand grenade 
and an unloaded handgun. After getting the money and the parachutes in San Francisco, he demanded the plane go back in the sky and he jumped out over Provo, Utah, leaving a note and his fingerprints all over a magazine he was reading. A handwriting expert compared the note to McCoy's writing on some military service records and determined that he had written the note. He was arrested on April 9th with the cash in his possession and received a 45-year sentence. Yeah, he had hidden the cash in his attic or something. He escaped from two prisons and was eventually gunned down by FBI agents. The FBI is convinced, or a lot of agents are convinced, that McCoy was D.B. Cooper, but all they have is circumstantial evidence. They think that D.B. Cooper lost all the money during his jump. So D.B. Cooper or McCoy, in their minds, wanted to do it again because he lost all his money. The FBI officially doesn't consider McCoy a suspect in the case due to mismatches in age and description. There's also credible evidence that McCoy was in Las Vegas at the time of the Cooper hijacking and spent Thanksgiving with his family the next day in Provo, Utah. Yeah, and a couple other things about McCoy. Like I said, he is significantly younger than Cooper, I believe, um, or than the, the Cooper drawing. But uh, both stewardesses were, were clear that Cooper had dark brown eyes. McCoy's were light blue. Oh. And uh, his ears, if you look at the pictures of him, they, his nickname in the Army was Dumbo. McCoy's? Yes. He had really big ears like Dumbo oh, yeah, the Elephant. Uh, and lastly, uh, despite his criminal past, he was a devout Mormon mm-hmm. who did not drink nor smoke. And clearly, D.B. Cooper liked his bourbon and liked his Raleigh's. I put Richard McCoy toward the bottom of my suspect list. Yeah, I think I think he, uh, why would you push your luck and do it again? And the fact that he escaped prison and was drawing attention to himself seems very different from Dan Cooper, who, if he got away with it, he spent the rest of his life quietly, you know, trying not to draw attention to himself. So they just seem like two different people to me. Lastly, on my list, we have L.D. Cooper or Lynn Doyle Cooper. He was a leather worker and a Korean War vet who was proposed as a suspect by his niece, Marla Cooper, in 2011. When Marla was eight years old, she overheard her uncle L.D. planning something mischievous with another uncle near Portland. The next day was the hijacking, and her uncles were supposedly turkey hunting. L.D. came home injured and wearing a bloody shirt. He said it was because of a car accident. Her parents later came to believe that L.D. was D.B. Cooper. Marla later recalled that L.D. was obsessed with the Canadian comic book character Dan Cooper, and uh, L.D. was not a skydiver or a paratrooper, which would go in line with the FBI's thinking. But no fingerprints or DNA matched L.D. Cooper, but as we know, that may not be the most credible thing in this case. I put him second on my list. Mm -hmm. I think he could have been it. You know, this seems seems like a guy who didn't do it for the money. He just did it because... Robin Hood. Or, you know, he just thought it'd be fun. Right. And the the fact that the, the daughter... Was it the daughter or the niece? The, the niece, niece yeah. said she overheard them talking about something very mischievous. 
but he, she saw the walkie talkies. Yes. I could see him just getting the money and, and you had to know you couldn't spend it. So I think he probably just dumped the money somewhere and he spent the rest. He could have just spent the rest of his life, him and his brother sitting out back drinking some bourbon and saying, mm-hmm. boy, we put it over on them, didn't we? And um, she said she never saw him again. And she asked her dad about him, and he said, well, you know, he was D.B. Cooper, so we won't see him again. Now, here's the other thing about uh, L.D. Cooper. He was obsessed with the comic book hero, Dan Cooper. Um, In fact, had one of the comic books thumbtacked to the wall. So that could give him, uh, and his name was Cooper anyway, so that could give him another another idea on on how uh, how to do that, plus his hair. Now, you tell me, it says he had wavy hair that looked Marcel. What does that mean, being the fashion icon that you are? As did Dwayne Weber. Marcelling is a hairstyling technique in which hot curling tongs are used to induce a curl into the hair. Its appearance was similar to that of a finger wave, but is created using a different method. So, you know, the 20s, the, yeah. the finger waving. Okay, here's a man with it. Oh, it's Loki, or the guy who plays Loki. Okay. Well, supposedly, yeah. that's, the witnesses said uh, D.B. Cooper had that kind of hair. Uh, L.D. Cooper did, as did uh, Dwayne Smith. There's the sketch. Dwayne so Weber? I, I, I rank Dwayne, him. Dwayne huh? Weber? Yeah. So I rank, uh, I rank him probably right behind Dwayne Weber in my list of likely nefarious hijackers Mm -hmm. i would agree there is the possibility though that db cooper did not make it Mm -hmm. and that's a pretty strong possibility oh yeah the fbi originally thought that cooper was an experienced skydiver maybe even a paratrooper but concluded that this was untrue after a few years as you said dad that parachute uh, an experienced skydiver would have checked to make sure the parachutes worked, but that one was sewn shut and he didn't even check it. An experienced parachutist wouldn't have jumped out of a plane in pitch darkness in the rain and wearing loafers and a trench coat. Makes sense. But was he trying to disguise? Uh, it was also 15 uh, degrees. 15 degrees. And when Wind he jumped chill, down yeah. the plane, it was seven below. That 10,000 feet. So he was he was going to be pretty chilly. Uh, yeah, with if no he, protection. I would say if he did this, there had to be an accomplice yes. nearby, which now leads me back to L.D. Cooper again. The, the brother. Cousin, the brother, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this says that um, if he did land safely, the FBI says that he couldn't have survived the mountainous terrain without an accomplice at a predetermined landing point. However, this would have required a precisely timed jump with cooperation from the crew, and there's no evidence that this cooperation was communicated or desired from Cooper. But could they have planned that way? Would have been hard. Yeah. Not knowing where he was actually going to jump and in the dark. Um, Now, here's one other interesting thing, though, that... that, uh, the so-called bomb in the briefcase. Mm-hmm. The stewardess described those uh, as really bright red cylinders, which obviously people believe, well, it had to be dynamite. The FBI was questioning that from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They said dynamite's going to be a dark red or a kind of a burnt orange, not bright red. They thought probably not dynamite. It could be flares. Hmm. They but they didn't want to take the chance with with a plane full of people. So maybe he maybe those were flares. And uh, so like he could see. So he could see, and so he could signal someone oh. to come get him. Huh. So that's a possibility. Oh, I didn't see that. I'm leaning more toward L.B. Cooper now, I yeah. think, because I talked through this with you. Yeah, I agree, because he had the uh, accomplice. There were some mistakes made by the FBI. No offense, as usual, but that's okay. They don't always make mistakes, but sometimes they make some pretty big blunders. They lost the cigarette butts, mm-hmm. which would have helped solve this like it solved the Golden State Killer. Like mm-hmm. if, if an ancestor did Ancestry.com, we would mm-hmm. know who, L, or who, who LD, yeah. <laughs> who D.B. Cooper was, probably. You would have had a lot clearer DNA on those cigarette butts than you had on the tie. On the tie, clip. yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yes. And um, I also saw an article that said the FBI might have been looking in the wrong place for the parachute and the remaining man- ransom money. There was another suspect named Walter Recca, which we didn't talk about. And he says he landed near Clay Elum, Washington. And the FBI originally thought Cooper could have landed in southwest Washington near Portland. I mean, who knows? I'm I'm guessing they would have looked since well, they closed the case, so I don't know if they've even looked there. And this next one isn't a mistake, but uh, the FBI has closed the case. It was closed in 2016, and they said they will not reopen it unless someone comes up with relevant physical evidence, such as the parachutes or the ransom money. So if you know who D.B. Cooper is and you know where the money is, tell the FBI so we can figure it out. And I bet there's still a reward out. I'm sure there is. That's all we have. We don't know who did it. Well, let's post and give us your clues or your ideas on who. Yes, I'll is post a poll. DB Cooper. Good, good. Yep. Well, Dad, who do we have next week? Well, next week we are going to be talking about the pizza bomber. Ooh. If you want to prepare for the episode, there's, I think, a six part documentary series on Netflix called Evil Genius that will tell you about this case. It is wild okay i think this happened in the oh gosh pretty recently like 80s or 90s i'm not i'm probably wrong but pretty recently and it's crazy all right and don't forget to purchase some merch lucy besh designed our merch and it's amazing it is you can usually see it in our cocktail videos and join our vip facebook group it is f-r-e-e free all right then we show the cocktail videos. We have fun. We have memes. It's great. It's called Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP. All right. Have a good week, everybody. And you have a safe trip to Florida. Thank you very much. See you guys next week. If they do hijack you to Cuba, bring me back some Cuban cigars. You know I will, Dad. All right, then. <laughs> Bye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. 
We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. <laughs>